Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Weekly Whitney, a Bacon Wire podcast. Joined, by always, uh, with my lovely wife, Cassie. Hello, everyone. I'm Lucas Whitney. We've had a little bit of a hiatus. It was a pretty busy week last week. I had my birthday. We had a couple of birthdays in, in my side of the family. Mm-hmm. Had a couple of get-togethers, and, you know, there was just so much stuff going on. We really didn't have time to even do, like, a mini-episode or anything. Yep. My cousin got married. Congratulations, Becca and Kaden. Yep. Beautiful wedding. Yep. Amazing wedding, amazing people. Yes. My stepfather had his birthday, and uh, I turned 33 last week. Yeah. So that was fun. I uh, got a lot of great gifts. Every gift was great. A lot of MSU stuff to add to the collection, and uh, got my highly coveted AirPods, and a movie poster for a, a movie called Tenet that currently has a September 4th release date in the U.S., but we're going to get to it. The closer we get, the more confident I feel talking about it. I want to... So, thanks to Amazon, I bought the poster, and it was pretty cheap. It was only 20 bucks, but um, what was cool and what I didn't know before it arrived was that, actually, before Lucas even opened it, because I knew if he saw the poster, too, he'd figure out what I got him, so I had it sent (laughs) to his mom's house. It actually has the original June 17th, I'm sorry, July 17th release date, and it also has the original logo with the E.T. turned. Yeah, they got into a lawsuit with a bike company called Tenet Bicycles, and Chris Nolan didn't realize it when he made the logo, and they just said, you know, we'd appreciate it if you took it down, and he said he was sorry, so that was pretty civil. Yeah, but the poster has all the original stuff. Yeah, the poster has the original stuff. So we'll talk Tenet. I feel like I jinx it every time I say it's going to come out. So I'm I'm going to just wait until I literally purchase tickets. That That's when I'll feel good about it. So a weekly Whitney podcast without a Tenet update? We don't even know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm done. I'm done talking about it until I see it or until the tickets are in my hands and I'm ready to go. So we watched a couple of different things. We're first going to discuss uh, the trend that movie theaters have to go to right now if they're open. Which is basically just kind of picking out of the you know humongous library of hits and classics that are available for them to you know purchase the rights to for cheap or just air on their screens. Like uh, Jurassic Park was number one again in the United States a couple weeks ago. Empire Strikes Back was number one again. I'll have to look up the list, but I know Cassie saw a thing about uh, Interstellar, right? Yeah, in China that was making quite a bit of money. Yeah, um, Interstellar was a pretty big international hit. It, it didn't do that well over here, but... Well, they talked about, I mean, we'll dive into it a little bit more later, but they talked about how, like, the two Dark Knight movies, the um, Batman Begins and Dark Knight, um, the original Dark Knight, were not as big with Chinese audiences because right. it insinuated that there was a Chinese mob a little bit, <laughs> and they did not appreciate that, apparently. No. So... Jurassic Park was number one. In uh, a month and a half ago, June 19th to 21st, Ghostbusters was number one July 4th weekend. And then Empire Strikes Back was number one the next weekend, the 10th through 12th. And then after that, it's been a couple of short, smaller movies that they didn't really expect to make a ton of money. So they released them. And worst case scenario, they could go on demand and still make their money back. So it's kind of cool to see those smaller movies get the opportunities to make money in this uh, weird and just pretty pretty quiet climate of um of hollywood right now you know movies are starting to be filmed again 
who knows what's going to happen. You know, if it's if it's any consolation, you know, the MLB is probably going to get canceled because there's more and more positives that are coming every single day. So I think by the time this podcast drops, we might see a cancellation of baseball. So, we'll, you know, that, that might be a kind of precursor to people and crews who don't bubble, you know, do a quarantine bubble. You know, the NBA and the NHL are working swimmingly. I don't think the NFL is going to work and college football is not going to happen. So I, I'm not sure about movies, but, you know, I don't understand why. I mean, I do understand, but I don't why movie theaters can't reopen if casinos are. And I know it's the money, but you can quarantine it's or you, you can sanitize and clean a theater a lot easier than a casino. I don't think it's about that. I think it's about policing during the movie. Yeah, and I think it's about making the experience something different than what it than what it is currently. Right. So that was a little tangent I went on, but you know we'll we'll see, we'll see what happens in a month. I think that's kind of how we're playing it. Is like a month from now, certain movies are trying to come out. I'm not going to name them, but certain. And just by the way, as far as the casinos are concerned, it's uh, that's not governed no by the state. So that's why they basically have been nice and being closed this long they didn't yeah they reopened way before they were supposed to yeah they didn't have to do any of the cdc stuff because they're their own country basically so so i watched for the first time uh scott pilgrim versus the world on netflix starring michael Sarah, jason schwartzman mary elizabeth winstead kieran culkin chris evans among others brie larson brie larson yeah I thought it was a really good movie. It was very... What's your score off the bat? 85. Nice. Edgar, Edgar Wright has never made a bad movie. Yeah, he's pretty good. It's it's from 2010. It was it was kind of a bomb. It was a box office bomb, but it wasn't... It was a very cult classic movie. Like, it's it's grown a reputation since it... Yeah, um, it's a sleeper hit. People really love it now, but when it came out, they were like, what the hell is this? Yeah. Um, it's about Scott Pilgrim wanting to date this girl who has seven evil exes, and you know there's twists and turns along the way, and it's, it's kind of it's a video game. Yeah, it's like it's like a live video game, but it's it's pretty cool. It's very fictitious. Yeah. It doesn't take itself seriously, and you can tell it's, it's just they had a lot of fun making it. I really like this movie, and Michael Cera I'm not the biggest fan of, but Same. he he does a pretty good job in the movie. Like they kind of made the role tailored to him. Well, I kind of believe that, like, if there were to be, I guess, a live-action person of, like, like say, who's the who's the kid from Zelda? Link. Link. He's, like, Link, right? Like, he's just sort of, like, a nothing guy. He's, like, an everyman or whatever. But then he, like, finds it, you know, in himself to go through all these levels and, right. you know, to get the goal. To get yeah. Princess Zelda. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, which is sort of like this movie because, you know, he's trying to get Ramo- Ramona. Ramona. Yeah, Ramona Flowers. Ramona. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really liked it. It was a good movie. It's very enjoyable. If you haven't watched it, watch it on Netflix. It's not, it's it's a little... It's not too risque. It's pretty tame. But I really liked it. What's your score? I'd probably give it an 80. Um, I, I've watched it a few times now. It's something fun to sort of put on. I feel like I watched it with my brother quite a bit. I know back when it came out, which was... 10. 10 years ago? 2010. 2010, yeah. So back then, I... Now, veganism and vegetarianism wasn't as much of a thing as it is now so I especially we always laughed about the part where they get points for bragging about being a vegan Mm -hmm. and then like Chris Evans explodes for having something that wasn't vegan right that's always made me laugh 
Yeah, I thought it was just a really well done movie, very fast paced. Yes. And it was a good story. Then Cassie and I watched an older comedy from 2008 called Hamlet 2. Stars Steve Coogan, um, Catherine Keener, and Elizabeth Shue, among others. If you hear that meow, that's Oliver. Like he's uh, our podcast mascot. He's he's a little pissy right now, I guess. Um, it, I think it's a really funny movie. I give it a 90 out of 100. It's just very controversial. It's risque. It definitely couldn't come out now. No at way. All. <laughs> and Steve Coogan is just hilarious in it. Like, he plays this stereotypical, like, how you envision a drama teacher to be yeah. for the uninitiated in drama class in schools is how I envision it. Dana Mars. <laughs> That's how I pronounce his name. So good, and and the, and like the kids are good. It's just a great. I, I really like that movie. I haven't watched it in a long time, so it did it did not age bad at all. I thought it was good. I thought it was funny. It wasn't something I think I'd watch again, but I don't know. I'd probably give it between a sixty five and a seventy, hmm. probably in that range. I like some of the ideas. I think more than the actual execution of what they did. I thought the idea of a school putting on. A horrible play was funnier than the actual execution. I, however, did really enjoy watching the actual play in yeah. the movie. I rock thought that me, was very me, entertaining. Rock me sexy Jesus. Yeah. I thought it was funny that the a lot of the people in the church locally in the town didn't care for that particular song, Rock but then Me they Sexy like loved Jesus, it. but then they ended up really liking it. Because of the message it conveyed about Jesus. Yeah. Oh, and another one we watched, we, we didn't really want to put this on the docket, but I might have just remembered it, Role Models. Oh, yeah, on, we uh, I think that. it was on Hulu, or no, it was on Stars. it was on Stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, so was Hamlet 2, Hamlet 2 was on Stars. forgot to mention that, but Role Models stars Sean William Scott and Paul Rudd as like two kind of just pricks that are not very pleasant people to be around, and they have a rough day at work, they commit some small crimes, and end up having to do like a probationary like big brother big sisters program and um like they get paired Charlie Scott but gets paired with this young kind of uh I wouldn't say misunderstood young just the little little jerk kid named Ronnie mm-hmm. and um who lives at home with his mom single Which mother pushes all his role model partners away basically yeah his so his uh his bigs his bigs yeah, yeah. he pushes his bigs away but Sean William Scott's wheeler is like perfect for him because he doesn't take his shit. Yeah. And it's just like you're and I think that's what Ronnie needed is like it's basically alluded that his his father's never around. Mm-hmm. And it's like this is his father figure. Well kids do that on purpose. They yeah. do it to see like if you're gonna stick around if they do, you know, A, B, C, and D to you. Yeah. And Paul Rudd is just an unhappy jerk who proposed to his girlfriend and then she moved out, so it was a pretty big mess. Well, he was always, yeah, just depressed. Just, he's negative. And, just a negative yeah, Nancy. super cynical. And um, he gets paired up with this very awkward only child who has a crappy mom and a really and an even crappier stepdad who, like, discourage him from being himself. And I think that's the point is that he just needs to be himself and he'll be fine. Yeah, he's really into role-playing. Yeah, he's like really live-action like... role-playing, LARP. Yep. So. Really, really funny side characters, too. Ken Jeong is the king of this LARP world. Elizabeth Banks is good in it. She's she's good in a lot of stuff. She's Paul Rudd's ex She's Paul Rudd's ex, yeah. And Jane Lynch is, like, the funniest. 
I think, the funniest part of the movie because she plays the head of this big brother, big sister. It's called the uh, Helping Hands. Yeah. And um, <laughs> she, she, just from the moment you see her, she's just so... Apparently out- she used to be a drug addict yeah. and that's all she talks about. I had about. some sick thoughts. I had yeah. sick thoughts. And then through her sobriety, she found this organization. Yeah. That helps. And she does a running gag with a hot dog, like the wiener and the bun. It's pretty funny. Very, in 2008, I really didn't quite understand it as much as I should have. (laughs) But it's still a really funny movie, and it holds up well. I just felt like putting it on after Hamlet, too, so I think we should have rolled that in. Yeah, it's a funny movie. Yeah, Role Models is phenomenal. I give it a 90 out of 100. I'll watch it anytime it's on. There's a lot of great lines. I'd probably give it 85. Do you like Coke? I like the idea of it more than the actual product. Oh, was that me? F you, Miss Daisy. <laughs> I like the little kid. Ronnie is so the funny. Part. I'm going to let Cassie take the wheel for this. Um, I, of course, as a huge Beyonce fan, watched Blackest King on Disney+. Plus. It came out this past Friday, the 31st. Um, I watched it the next morning because we had plans that day but it was very good um as per usual i wouldn't really expect anything less of hers what i guess i was surprised about was that it was sort of like a lion king narrative i didn't realize that's what it was going to be but then of course it made sense being that it premiered on disney plus and it was you know going off of her involvement with lion king in 2019 i only watched part of it i thought it was pretty interesting like I might finish it, but I'm not, like, in a hurry. And it seems like a love letter to how proud she is of being black. And I really like that part of it. Like, she embraces the culture more than anyone I've seen who is black and kind of has her close to her stature or power because not many people do in this world. I think her overall message, I think the primary message is to black men in particular because at the end she dedicates it to her son yeah um and not to all of her children which we know she has two daughters and a son so i think that it was primarily based upon events that have been happening in this country for a long time to black men in particular yeah um and she did a really nice job of formatting a story within this what they call a visual album and it's very beautiful. It's it's poetic. The song "Brown Skin Girl" makes me tear up because I don't know. The, the thought of anybody being told that they're not beautiful is horrible. And I really think it's nice that she is, you know, valuing black people in particular who have been told these things in our country for a long time that are not true and are horrible. So I think that's really nice. And you can see, it's it's really beautiful. You can see, like, her relationship with her daughter in that song and her friendship that she's had for pretty much her whole life with Kelly Rowland as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Interesting. They've been friends since they were little girls. Right. So I think that, that was a really cool, Is Kelly in the movie? She, yeah, she's in it for that song. Oh, that's cool. Yep. They kind of, the other one, they're like, eh, we're good. Well, but they, seriously, Kelly and Beyonce have been friends since they were, like, 12 years old. I know. So. That's cool. Yeah. And also, Jay Z is in a in a party. I heard, thought I heard him when yeah, up there. There's a I think he's in, it's in the song that says "Mood Forever," and that's a really cool upbeat jam. That's a great song. What would you give it score wise? Probably an eighty five or a ninety, somewhere between there. I really enjoyed it, but 
you're holding the candle next to Lemonade for me, because that was her last visual album, and I, I hold that as a 110% on my list. That is... That's something that spoke to me on a lot of levels. I think I think I would say that Lemonade was made for women and Blackest King was made for black people. Hmm. I think it's a good way to say it. And not that other people can't enjoy it, but I think that was her intention as a artist. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, I'm really happy she made this and it came out obviously at a very good time and it's beautiful. Just don't it's read the gorgeous. comments on Disney Plus Facebook sections. It's pretty bad. I hate people. <laughs> Facebook is like the worst for comment sections. Yeah. Yeah, Black is King on Disney Plus. Oh, shorter runtime. It was only an hour and a half I saw. That's pretty surprising. Yeah. I thought it'd be longer. Well, Lemonade was about that. Lemonade was just a little bit over an hour. I think these visual albums are supposed to tell a story, but not like a movie. It's supposed to be somewhere in between. It's more like a short film. Hmm. We are starting our second edition of the Director's Look Back series. This one is dedicated to the guy who many... I mean, he is my favorite director right now, but, you know, he's... It's like 1A and 1B between him and Spielberg all time. Mm -hmm. It's Christopher Nolan, who turned 50 on my birthday. We're birthday buddies, so he turned 50, a, a golden age. This was tough because... I mean, honestly, I could watch any of his movies for this look back, but Cassie wanted to kind of pick and choose. We did one blockbuster and then one, like, lesser-known movie. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, he doesn't have a lot of lesser-known movies. You yeah, know, Honestly, his catalog isn't that big. No, but it's selective, but it's pretty quality. Like, he makes a lot of money, but, like, he doesn't, like, fart out a movie every year. No, which I think is important, but also, like, he hasn't had his long of a career as, say, Spielberg. Spielberg no. has a very extensive catalog, but he's also been making movies since he was a child. Spielberg has 25 years on Nolan, pretty yes. much. Yes, yes. Um, so, we watched Memento and The Dark Knight. <laughs> two, two blatantly different movies on the opposite sides of the spectrum. But I think, I, I would say the two most important movies of Christopher Nolan's career... It, I really would. The more that I think about it, the more that I let Memento sit in me. Dark Knight, I know heart, heart. You know, I know ugh. the Dark Knight. I know completely, like from the heart. I, my opinion never changed that movie, and it's just gotten stronger over the years. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, let's start with Memento because Memento was actually his first. How do you full length like Hollywood film, movie? Hollywood yeah. movie. Um, the short version of the plot is that he, the main character is a man with short-term memory loss, and he's attempting to track down his wife's murderer. Yeah. It stars Guy Pierce as, um, Leonard, Carrie Ann Moss as Natalie, and Joe Pants, Joey Pants, Joey Pantoliano as Teddy, or John Gamble. It's told in a little bit of a weird order, like, the ending is the beginning, and then there's black and white scenes that are intermixed in that forward the plot to what you w- what what will be the ending, but it's like okay the color scenes are the plot being or the story being told in reverse, and then the black and white scenes are okay well this explains that scene but then I have to go I'm talking about the next scene. Well, the, I would say the black and white scenes are more like 
a little bit of expose on the background like exposition. of the character. Yeah, because you're you're hearing him tell the story of one of his clients right. from him being an insurance... Sandy Jenkins. Who was his job? An insurance claims investigator. Claims, yeah, fraud investigator. Yep, so he was telling a story of one of his clients through all these black and white pieces where he's talking on the phone. Because Leonard, the main character, has a amnesia type of amnesia where it's literally short-term memory loss like he can talk to you for 15 20 minutes oh he always says it's not amnesia yeah well that's pretty you know it's pretty close <laughs> yeah like he, he'll he talk to you for 15 20 minutes you could leave to go to the bathroom and come back and he, he'd he be like have we met yeah who are you yeah and i mean should we spoil it it's a 20 year old movie but i think it's i think everyone should watch it it's such a it's a great introduction. You can see the seeds of what Chris Nolan would do later on in his yeah, movies. Yeah, I mean, if you if you were interested in watching it and don't want to hear the spoilers, you can skip ahead. Yeah, I'll, I'll put a uh, spoiler tag in here for you. So, right now we're going to talk spoilers from Memento. A 20-year-old movie, we usually don't do this, but it's not a very well-known movie. To avoid spoilers for Memento, skip to 3310. Skip to 331. Zero. So, Leonard's basically faking it. Like, he he is the guy that he talks about in his insurance fraud claim. Well... He killed his wife with too much insulin, and he pretty much knew he did it. And he, he loved his wife and he misses her, but he can't cope with the fact that he killed her. So he made up someone in his mind to go kill. I guess I would say he is and he isn't faking it because on one level basically at some point in time he had decided that he was going to keep looking for her quote-unquote killer because he couldn't face the fact that he did it but then on another level he honestly believes that because every time that he snaps back into his memory loss he completely forgets everything before the accident yeah so and the accident trained himself as we took it, the accident actually happened. She got so she was raped for real. She actually was raped in the middle of the night and like someone broke into their house and did not kill her, which he believes at first. Right. But he actually went into the bathroom where it was happening and tried to obviously like shoot or attack the her attacker and, and got knocked out. Yeah, got knocked out and that's where his short term memory loss comes from. But after that, they both survived. And then right. he had the short-term memory loss, and mm. she didn't necessarily believe him and wanted their old life back. So she kept, she kept like, at 3 o'clock was her insulin shot. She, he gave it to her. Like, he knew how to do that stuff. It was mm-hmm. things before the memory loss he knew how to do. He gave it to her, and he would put his put the tray down and sit and watch TV again. And then she'd, she'd rewind her watch and say, hey, it's 3 o'clock. It's time for an insulin. She did it, like, four times. Yeah. And she died. Yeah. She overdosed on insulin because she honestly thought he was faking it. And I, I am personally, I'm like, that's an extreme test because that's what it was, was a test. Right. To see, like, if he would actually kill her because... But she didn't think she he would She didn't believe it. he would kill her purposefully but thought that he was didn't really have memory loss. Well, clearly he did. he did. I guess I would think that two would have been enough. Right. Like, doing that once, like, rewinding the watch and being, hey, it's time for my shot, that would have been enough to be like, hey, like, I can still live through this, might just have to go to the hospital. I feel like that was a really exaggerated take. 
Right, but it was important to see her watch because it was like 20 minutes every time. Yeah. So that's what he said, like 15, 20 minutes is the max he can remember someone right now. That's not that's true. from his past. Well, and in his story, the man could only remember two minutes. Right. So I guess that would have been a hole in the story about the made-up person. Well, maybe he just made it up that he could only, because it's obviously him he's talking about. Well, I know, but like that's what I'm saying. Like, if it was the, if his memory loss was 15, 20 minutes, and the right. man he made up was only two minutes, that's a hole. Yeah. Not in Christopher Nolan's storytelling. But in his storytelling. In his storytelling. Yeah, because he's talking to uh, Joe Pantoliano throughout the whole movie. And I guess you could say that maybe as she realized that he wasn't faking it, she just didn't want to live anymore. Yeah. She didn't want to live that She could way. not believe it and just, like, sat there and died. She went, yeah. to a di- she went to a diabetic coma and passed away. Yeah, but she did that to herself on purpose because the whole time she knew that she was going to die if they kept doing it. Right. Um, I hadn't seen this movie in probably 10, 10, 12 years. And yeah, it had been a long time for me as well, at least six, seven years. If you told this story just regular fashion, I don't think it's as good of a movie. I think the way it's edited and the way that it's done like kind of you have like two lines like you have one line going north one line going south Mm -hmm. and they meet up at the perfect time it's almost like if you were to listen to an album backwards like an old-fashioned like cassette tape and you have to keep rewinding it and then you find where it connected then you rewind it again and find where it connected that's how the movie feels right and i like during the the black and white scenes like the music changes like it's just this very somber piano yeah boom I don't know, that just, it just fit well with that, with what's trying to happen. I don't know stuff like that, you know stuff like that. Because, like, the music in the colored scenes started to get more and more intense the further the movie went, if you listen yeah. to it. Very non-existent at the beginning, but then near the end when he takes the car from the guy that he killed, from Carrie Ann Moss's boyfriend, and screeches the brakes at the tattoo parlor Mm -hmm. the music's very very bassy and high pitched like it's and then the movie ends so that was kind of interesting that the music kind of took a different tone the the further the movie went along (laughs) things that i notice about his directing style in this that are reflected in his later works was it seems to be that his lead character is usually male which is fine um, but his lead character is always a male who's in search of his own identity in some kind of fashion. Hmm. Wouldn't Go on. You, wouldn't I... you agree? So Batman begins, he's kind of conflicted with Bruce Wayne and Batman. Yeah. That echoes even in the it, Dark Even Knight. through the Dark Knight. I think Dark Knight, he's more confident in who he is, though. Oh, but then there's still the question like of, Dark Knight of is prime why are Batman. you doing this? Who, right. What kind of hero are you? Are you a hero? What are you? That's still an identity crisis. I'd say prestige. I don't think I don't think Hugh Jackman's confused. I think he's just angry. Like, he wants to be the best magician ever. Well, what about the can't. other guy? Borden? I don't think he was confused. He knew he was screwing with Hugh Jackman because he had a twin brother, and that's how he got him to... To do the trick and to but kill isn't himself. That like an identity crisis that you have a twin brother and like. Well, yeah, he was leading a double life and he really didn't. Yeah. Like you know, know what he wanted to do, but I I think he was more like, I'm just living to screw with Hugh Jackman. And I think Interstellar, that's an identity crisis because yeah, because he he's always torn between his important job as an astronaut and being a family man. Well, he gave up being an astronaut. 
Well, and to then, be an, and to then be he a farmer. gave up being in his kid's life. And... Yeah, Interstellar Cooper is like uh, his dad, his grand, like his uh, father-in-law said, like you were born thirty years too late or thirty years too early. Yeah, like, but still, you... that's an identity crisis. Yeah. So I think that's a theme that he has. I don't know what that says about Nolan in particular. Maybe he identifies with that. Dunkirk. Maybe I he mean... just finds it interesting. I don't know. Dunkirk, I wouldn't say the kid's confused. I think he's just scared and trying to get home. Sure, I guess I you could say that would be the exception because... In Tenet, we don't know what's going to happen, so I think maybe he's more confident because he's just know, called what, the protagonist. Well, in Dunkirk, what about... Um, the French guy? No. The, Harry Styles? I'm so... No. The guy who was in Harry Potter and... Kenneth Branagh. Yeah, Kenneth Branagh has a bit of an identity crisis because he's just trying to get his guys home. He's he's like we're well, screwed. But he also has a moment to think about like what what kind of leader am I right now? Right. You know, am I worried about the war? Or worried about my men? Yeah, but that's a really interesting way to to see some seeds that he's sown. And I just think the way the movie's shot too, it's very steady. Mm-hmm. He's he uses dedicated angles a lot and. I think you have to with this kind of movie because you're wondering what's happening the whole time. So there has to be some sort of stability to not make the watcher feel right really disoriented. Yeah, and I mean he's it's the same guy Wally Fister who shot this with Chris. He shot Insomnia, Batman Begins, Prestige, Dark Knight, and Inception, and Dark Knight Rises. Mm-hmm. Wally went to do other things because he didn't shoot. Hoyt Van Hoytema has shot Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet. And I'm going to be honest, I think it's an upgrade. compared. I like Wally Pfister, but I think Hoyt Van Hoytema is way better. Well, we'll talk more about Wally when we talk about Dark Knight. Yeah, I think but... he had more of an... And I'm not trying to bat... Not like he's ever going to listen, but I'm not trying to bash Wally Pfister. I just think Interstellar and... You can tell a vast difference. Like, if you watch Dark Knight Rises... Mm-hmm. And watch Interstellar with how they're shot. You have the signature Nolan effects, but like, it's def. It feels like two totally different movies. Well, last thoughts on Memento, I guess yeah. for me would be, you can you can tell some of his themes that like what he finds intriguing in a story are still in this, but on that same note, there's a lot of things that don't really like feel like Nolan-y because he doesn't know what he is yet as a director. And I don't mean that in a disrespectful well, is, way. No. I mean, he's just growing. He was 30 when he made this. Yeah, so I just mean that as, like, he hadn't quite found what he wanted to make his signature be yet. But I love that his brother wrote it and that he finds the stories that his brother wants to tell really intriguing. I think that's nice. Wow. Um, I kind of look at this stuff before we move on to Dark Knight. Brad Pitt was slated to play Leonard. Pitt was interested in the part, but he had to pass due to other conflicts. I could have seen that, but at the same time, I think that Brad Pitt is too... How do I say? Pretty boy? He's not... I believe that Guy Pierce could be a gigantic piece of shit. I would not believe that Brad Pitt could be a gigantic piece of shit. Does um, that make sense? Yeah, I agree with you. Like, I believe that, like, he would have known, like... Like, I, I don't care if that's not my wife's killer. I'm going to kill him anyway. I believe that Guy Pierce can pull that off, but not necessarily Brad Pitt. Aaron Eckhart, who we'll talk about in a little bit, was also considered, and Thomas Jane was too. I could see Thomas Jane. I could see Thomas Jane. I cannot see Aaron Eckhart. Guy Pierce impressed Nolan the most, and 
he was enthusiastic to get the role. He called Nolan personally to discuss the part too. So I think that he reached out to him and he's like, wow, this this guy wants to be in my movie. Yeah, like, it's it's such a good movie. It's it's highly underlooked. And you can't really find it anywhere streaming. Like, we found it on the Roku channel. Yeah. Because we have the Roku TV and, the, like, the boxes. I mean, obviously you can rent it or whatever right. for a price, but... Like, you can rent it for three bucks. So it's not, like, a bank breaker. But um, I give it... I really like Memento. I liked it more than I remember I liked it. I guess, how do I say it? I like the creativity, and I like how he told the story, but I don't I don't find it enjoyable to watch, because it makes me feel so uneasy. Hmm. So I guess in one hand, I like that, because it's different, but on the other hand, I don't think I rewatch it too often. I'm going to give it a 85 out of 100. I, I enjoyed it. But I think this is the beginning... You can tell it's the beginning of an incredible career for this guy. I guess I give it between a 75 and an 80. That's somewhere in there for me. Okay. I enjoy it, but not as much as other ones. Okay, so this next movie is the greatest superhero movie ever made. It is one of the best movies ever made. It should have won Best Picture at the Oscars, and I will touch on that whole thing. It is The Dark Knight, um, made in 2000, or released in 2008. Directed by, obviously, Christopher Nolan. Stars Christian Bale as Batman. Slash Bruce Wayne. Michael Caine as Alfred. We're going to spoil this movie because yeah. if you haven't honestly seen this, I don't really even think right. that you're an American. Um, like, everybody has seen this movie. Uh, and Heath Ledger as the Joker in an iconic performance. One that people still think about to this day. And he is the standard. Gary Oldman is a highly underrated part as uh, Commissioner Jim Gordon. Aaron Eckhart as Harvey Dent, a.k.a. Two-Face. Maggie Gyllenhaal as Rachel Dawes. And Morgan Ugh. Freeman as Lucius Fox. That would have been the only choice that I would have recasted. Would be Maggie Well, Katie Gyllenhaal. Holmes couldn't make it. To... Didn't really like her as Rachel either. Right. I guess maybe I just don't like the character Rachel in general. But, you know, maybe that's huh. because of those actresses. Katie Holmes turned this down to film Mad Money with Diane Keaton and Queen Latifah. Oof. Big mistake there, Katie. Yeah, huge You missed mistake. out on the biggest phenomenon in pop culture in probably 20 years. That's, uh... That's pretty tough. That's like Will Smith turning down Neo. That's like Will Smith. That's he bad. turned down Neo, he turned down Django, he turned down a lot of pretty big that's, parts. That's, uh, that's tough. Um, the movie is about Batman teaming up with Commissioner Gordon and, um, Harvey Dent to kind of bring peace back to Gotham City, who's, which has been riddled with mobsters and crime. And right when their plan is starting to come into effect and they're starting to do what they wanted to, this unknown, I, I'd call him just this unknown enigma, the Joker, pops up out of nowhere and helps the mob out. He comes out of nowhere and helps the mob and demands half the money because he knows that he can, he has the right, he has the wherewithal to deter Batman or to face him. And it's a pretty incredible plan by the Joker. You know, if you haven't seen this movie, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, it's, honestly, could you even say that he has a plan? He says himself, he's just yeah. like a dog chasing cars. I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what to do if I finally caught one. Yeah. I think that was a little bit of a bluff. He I obviously think he has had a, a plan. loose plan, but I think that he also, like, if something were to derail his plan, he wouldn't be that upset. No. Because he always sort of just like, well, whatever, then I could do this. Right. Um, 
It's an incredible movie. It's it's one hundred out of a hundred for me. It's it's fucking perfect. It's very very good. It's it's a perfect movie. You it's one of those movies that you can tell when you watch it that everyone was just on their A game because I think a great script like this one, which was written by Christopher Nolan and his brother Jonah Jonathan Nolan, who's created a lot of hit TV series like uh, Westworld um, and Person of Interest. You could tell that they just knew what story they wanted to write. And it helps when you get an iconic performance in Heath Ledger. Yeah. Who died at, like, what, 34, 35 at that? That's 28. Oh, my God. He died at 28. This was the last movie that he completely finished. Yeah. He won the Oscar posthumously for Best uh, Supporting Actor. He's only the second person in history to ever win an Oscar after they were dead. And uh, I think he was going to win it no matter what. Yeah, but that's, he... but that's saying something still, though. But on the other hand, you have to say, like, his performance was obviously what we consider amazing, like, like top, right? Right. But would it have been as critically acclaimed if he hadn't died? I think so. I I'm, don't not, think... I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. I disagree. I think his death was a part of why people saw it, but... It's not like you were going to lose $500 million if, if he was dead, if he was alive. I'm not saying that that's what brought everybody to the box office, but I am saying that critically, I think that might have had a part in it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we'll agree to disagree there. I mean, it's not a big argument. And it's not it's not a slight to him. It's just no. how the critics are. Um, and this is a... Like, Alfred's really overlooked in this movie because he's like the biggest constant in Bruce's life because Bruce thinks that he's going to move on to he's going to quit bat being batman and move on to be with Rachel and it's pretty clear that I think he kind of wants him he to He wants do that. to but it's pretty clear how dedicated he is to being batman because he's I think Alfred realizes this is his calling to be a hero to be and you know it gets harder like Bruce Wayne is still like a young guy I'd say you put him in his mid 30s in this movie or yeah. even early 30s cuz this supposedly is a year after Batman begins, so I think that you're in prime Batman. You know, say he's 30 years old. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, he's starting to realize that being a hero is very costly. Like, you're not going to please everybody. You're going to make more people mad than happy. And and, and, and you're going to have people who like you so much, they're risking their lives out there trying right, to Right, like Harvey, Harvey Dent wants to be the Batman, too. He's mm-hmm. risking his life. He turned himself in to save Batman so he, they can take down the Joker. And, like, those vigilantes at the beginning I all really, want to be him. But he, like, just basically knocked him out and was like, stop it. You can't be me. Well, I really like that line, though, that that one says. He's like, what's the difference between me and you? It's and basically then, money and training. And, yeah, that is the difference. I mean, honestly, I don't know. They're really, uh, morally, there's no difference. No. From from where you came from, there's no difference. But, yeah, Batman, obviously, like, he would be dead if he didn't have the gadgets or no. the... Or the training. The whatever... Because he could kar- take... Karate, he, whatever you call it, training. He could take on a room of 100 people and, and knock them all out. Right, but he couldn't before before Ra's al Ghul. No, I know. So... Because he, he was lost before he found Ra's al Ghul. Yeah, there, there we go again with the identity search. Yeah, it's a really interesting theme. I never thought about it until you brought it up. With Christian Bale, like... You know, I just, I love throughout the movie, he's just so conflicted. Like, he wants to stop, but I think about halfway through, he realizes he can't stop. Yeah. And so does Rachel. Like, in her letter to him when she dies, she well, knows he can't stop, and she thinks he shouldn't stop. 
Because she knows how important Batman is. I guess I kind of um, alluded to being a parent in a way. And again, we're not parents yet, but from what I understand, you know, you never stop being a parent. And you might get to that stage where you're like, oh, when my kid is this age, then we can do that stuff. You right. know, when my kid is this age, then we can go to this place. But really, you're always, they're always going to need you. They're always going to, you, you always know, wanna be you always want to take care of them. I think that's how Batman feels about Gotham. There's always going to be something to take care of for the city. And I think that's how Alfred feels about Bruce. Because even though Bruce is, you know, yeah, perfectly fine on his own, Alfred's like, I kind of need to help him. Yeah. And, like, it's his son, basically. I think my favorite line of Alfred's is when they are about to turn himself in as batman when harvey dent has that presser and says you know turn the bat you know, take the batman into custody when they're burning all that stuff so nothing comes back to them or rachel mm-hmm. and you know alfred you could tell he's a little like i don't know if we should be doing this and bruce says people are dying alfred what should i do and he says endure yeah you were made for this like they'll hate you they'll you'll be the outcast but this is what Batman can do that no one else can do. Like he, You can make the tough choice. And that is certainly echoed at the end of the movie, which I find still incredible at the end of this movie. Yeah, the writing is amazing. It, I wish Jonah Nolan and Chris wrote Dark Knight Rises because I think the issues from that who movie... Did, who did write David Dark- Goyer wrote it too, and he, he has a bad track record. He, he stems a lot why of the would, issues. Why would they choose somebody else to finish the trilogy? No, the, those three did it, but like Goyer came in and helped because he knew about he he incorporated Bane into the story. That seems dumb. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Heath Ledger dying kind of had an impact on Dark Knight Rises. Nolan says it didn't, but I don't believe him on that. I, I think know. if you could have Heath Ledger come back off of an Oscar-winning role, you have him come back. I don't know why they would change it up because you had a huge success with this movie. Why would you change it? Dark Knight Rises was just as successful. It was successful because of this movie. Right. Um, This movie at the time, when it came out, I mean, it it was the whole summer. Like, yeah, Iron Man came out, but everyone was just foaming at the mouth waiting for July 18th. Mm-hmm. Like, they were like, I cannot wait for this movie. Like, I, I remember going to see it at Celebration Cinema Grand Rapids North, where the IMAX theater is. And going to the midnight showing when movies wouldn't release at 7 p.m. or 6 p.m. It'd be midnight. Yep. And we walked out, and obviously my jaw was on the floor. And, you know, there was a line around the theater area because they did 24-hour showings the whole weekend. Like They were selling out every showing of The Dark Knight. I think that what's interesting about this movie is that this was one of the first superhero movies that was not a light, kid-friendly movie. This no. was a dark, gritty, realistic take. Right. And obviously Batman Begins was that as well, but I don't think that was nearly as successful as this movie. No, it still, it made enough money, but it was definitely a cat. It was kind of, I think, consider it kind of a test. Yeah. Like, if it made good money, Warner Brothers would go, okay, we're definitely doing The Dark Knight. Yeah. But... You know, I thought it, I think Batman Begins is is a good movie still, but The Dark Knight, I still think it's a perfect movie. I really can't find any plot holes with it. Like everyone's amazing in it. Gary Oldman is inc- he's an incredible actor. All of the men are amazing in it. <laughs> and I here we go. I okay, Christopher Nolan, he can't 
write a female very well. And I think he tries. But, like, for instance, in this movie, Rachel is only, and I think in the Dark and the Batman Begins as well, but she's only a device for Batman. She's, a, she's not necessarily her own character. We don't really know anything about her except for that. Well, actually, she's a device for two characters. We know that she is dating... Harvey. Harvey. And we know that she used to date and was in love with Bruce. Hmm. And, you know, obviously... Well, then... they've been childhood friends. Like, that was established in Batman Begins. Yeah, I know. But, I mean, like, she's not necessarily her own character. We don't see her with other people. We don't see her with friends. We see her working for the cause of the Gotham. Right. Briefly. Or we see her with one of those two men. Yeah. We don't really see her as her own character. And honestly, I don't know that she could carry it. How how she's written is just very, like, she's a mousy, beautiful girl. Girl you, next door kind of thing. You can see little bits and pieces of her being her own character when the Joker has her. And she, like, pushes him away. You know, like, she's, like, it's, it's a, I know it's not much, but, like, there's little bits and pieces of it. I not much. And I'm, I'm agreeing with you. I'm just I guess saying. in this particular instance with The Dark Knight, there wasn't too much room right. for that. But I do think that if we had had more of her, like, more attachment to her, and maybe that even played into, like, the change of actress between mm. the two films. But right. if we had had more of a tie, we would have felt her death more emotionally. Because, honestly, I couldn't give two craps when she died. No. I was like, oh, well, that sucks for them. That's about I I felt sad for Bruce and I felt sad for Harvey and that's all I felt sad about. But I did personally not care that she died. The movie drastically changes tone around that part. Yes. Like when when Gordon dies, you know, the fake death, that's when the movie goes a lot darker with things cuz like Harvey Dent's so pissed. He's like I rate that this is happening. He kidnaps that one shooter and is about to blow his brains out. And then Batman's like no. Yeah. You need to stop. Like everything you've done will be erased if this comes if this comes out. And then, you know, Harvey losing Rachel and Bruce losing Rachel, you know, it changed Harvey. But so but again, she's a device for them. Right. No, I, I never not, said he she wasn't. I know, but I'm just that that reiterates my point. I just I think that if she had been a little bit more in the beginning, you know, we had seen her do something that was a little bit more of an exposition of her character. That would have been great. Yeah. Um, but, you know, after he becomes Two-Face, it's like the movie just... You go into this dissension of madness with it. Because everything, you can tell the plan is just slowly unraveling. Well, again, I guess him. I could even argue that I understand how he's upset about that. Because who would like to lose the person that you love? But at the same time... I feel like I would have understood his madness a little bit more if I had liked her more. Right. Yeah, you're like she's you can't relate to her because you don't know as much about her. Yeah, well, and I can't relate to his loss as much because I'm like, okay, I know she was, I know she was your girlfriend, possibly fiance, but we don't even get to see him propose. We don't get to see much about her at all. We don't know. No. We don't know very much. No. But, and Nolan has a track record of that. The only person that I think Nolan writes very well as a female is an interstellar. He writes... 
I think she Anne I think Hathaway very well. In and Dark Knight Rise, I think she was a strong character. She's not really as much of a device in that movie. She's her own person. I would say you're correct. I think it's like he, she, it's he, like he, he writes Anne Hathaway job. well. Yeah, for some reason, it's weird. yeah. And um, Murph Murph is written well in Interstellar as well. Oh yeah, I agree. Like I I think I think Murph I think he wrote Murph with his daughter in mind. Yes, correct. Interstellar is a love a love letter to his daughter. But there, but in my opinion, I mean, as we've talked about with Interstellar, he didn't write Marion Cotillard very well. No, and I think that was part of the interesting part of Inception. But we've already discussed that movie. Yeah. Um. And you know, I've heard good things about Elizabeth Debicki and Tenet. Like, she's one of the top three build people in the movie, and they say that she's really good in it. Yeah, so we'll So see. it'll be nice if, if, you know, obviously there's no perfect director. You know, Spielberg and Nolan are my perfect directors, but, you know, I think you can make a perfect movie, and I really think this is a perfect movie. Well, and honestly, this isn't me, this isn't me dogging him, because I do think he's a very talented director. Right. And I previously had said that he was pretentious, but I do think that he just likes existential plots he likes identity crisis and a lot of that falls into a little bit of that realm with the i guess general themes of his movies but i really do love interstellar that's a great movie i think the more that he writes in personal emotional effects into his characters and has more females in there and makes it more of a diverse emotional experience the better his movies are right and I think with Interstellar, like the scene that gets me the most is when he's leaving his daughter and his son to go on that launch, you know, to go to space. Mm-hmm. And she's like, run, you know, she hates him at first, but then she runs out the door when he's leaving and is like, you know, crushed because she lost her mother. Now she's basically lost her father. Yeah. And, you know, and he's like, like Matthew McConaughey hold, holds it together so well. But you can tell he's on the inside. He's like, he's like, what am I doing? But he, he's just like, I think if he had the opportunity to save the earth and to save his daughter's, you know, life, Mm -hmm. I think he had to take it. That's his, um, another thing that he does really well is a, a distortion of time and memory. Right. So in that, like in Interstellar, you know, it was her whole life, her whole adolescence her whole childhood and for him it was like one long work trip yeah it was like a week yeah he aged about 90 or about 80 years yeah it was it was nuts but like in that scene it gets me even harder i don't want to choke up but like when he reached when he reaches under the coat to see if she's there and he just like he can't believe it he wishes she was there because i think if she was there he wouldn't have gone yeah because i think that was his moment like okay if i open up this coat she's in there I'm going home. Yeah. But if she's not there, I'm leaving. And he's just like, oh, my God, I got to leave. I know. It's such a great scene. And the music, the build-up to the music, and then, like, the countdown to the shuttle, it all meshes together so well. Absolutely. Interstellar, I think, is very overlooked as one of his best movies. Interstellar has so many different, like, that's the main plot is <sighs> him with his daughter and all that, but... Tied this... in with saving, with, with finding a new home and all yeah, that. Yeah, but the... The subplot of, you know, Anne Hathaway and when he didn't believe her, but she was right. She was dead right. She was dead right and he didn't believe her. And if they went there, she would have had her boyfriend back. Yeah, because it was an emotional decision. That's why he didn't believe her. But she was right. Love conquers all. 
I mean, we I think we feel those feelings on purpose. That's not just like a little thing. Right. And like that was just what's heartbreaking is that she, if if they believed her, mm-hmm. they'd probably go there and her boyfriend's there and they all like create a new colony and everything. Yeah. And creating a new world. But like it worked out because she figured out cuz Tars sent that equation you know, about, you know, making a space station all over the world, all over the universe. Mm-hmm. And then she did it. And she's known as, like, the greatest human to ever live. Not to get super emotional or anything, but, I mean, I couldn't explain how I felt about you when we first met. We'd known each other for, like, two hours on our first date, but, like, I felt a connection with you. What a weirdo. You said the same thing. See what he really thinks. I felt the same way that Cassie did, but I didn't want to be the first one to admit it. But I think I kind of did. But, like, with Cassie, it felt different, like, right away. Like, when I we started talking, getting to know each other, I'm like, you know, this isn't, like, another date. It feels like kind of the beginning of something permanent. Yeah, That's just, what it felt like to me. I mean, there's no logical explanation for it. Right. Except for it's just a feeling that you feel. Yeah, and, like, people, you know, throw that bullshit out, like, Oh, you, you you really said you loved her? Like, you, like you know, if you're talking to your friend, oh, you said you loved her, like, three weeks in? It's like, so what? You know, yeah, if you it, feel it. Obviously, it might backfire, and the, pers- the other person goes, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> you know, like, that. <laughs> that's good. That's when it sucks, but, like... <sighs> but, but... But that's the one thing I like about Interstellar, is that it's just basically, like, your love for someone can kind of explain a lot of things. Yeah. And she loved uh, Dr. Brand. No, she was Dr. Brand. I forget that doctor's name, but she loved him. Mm-hmm. And it's just sad because she, find, she finds his dead body. You know, tar, uh, not Tars, but the other ones burying him. Yeah, that's that's, that's crushing. But, like, at least Matthew McConaughey, at least it was great to see, oh, at the end of that movie, him have closure with his daughter who left. Because like, remember that message? She's like, I hate you. And Pretty she, much was, like she you was suck. on her deathbed. She was that old. She was a uh, hundred something years old, but like she, that was that's such a great scene. Like he's just, he's beside himself, but like his daughter's right in front of him, and she's just like, nope, you're not gonna see me die here. Yep. I got to see you. I got to tell you I love you. Like he's, she's like Doctor Brands on this planet. Go be with her. Yep. Like that's such a beautiful way to end it. Because I'm sure, obviously, she never hated her father. And I think she... And it was just great because, you know, when she's Jessica Chastain, she understands that the ticking watch is him. Like, that was her ghost because she kept saying there was a ghost in her room. Yeah. And it was her father saying, I should have stayed, but here's the equation to save save the human race. Yeah. I know we went off on Interstellar, but that's one of my favorite movies, too. That's that's my favorite Nolan movie. It Um, really hits home. But Dark Knight... I can't. I can. I could talk about it for hours. How brilliant it is, and like the plan, like the writing. There's no. I've said this a couple times about movies. There's no wasted line in this movie, and like every every line of the Joker's is brilliant. Like when he burns that gigantic pile of money, and is just oh. like, is just like, uh, you know, talking about how the the dogs that are barking have no loyalty, and he's like, how about I cut you into pieces, feed you to your dogs. And I'll show you how long, how loyal a hungry dog really is. Yeah. And the, that's kind of a, a thing about him. He's like, I don't give a shit about what you think of me. As somebody who works at a bank, rewatching that movie now, 
him burning that huge pile of money, I know somebody had to count that out. And that is very disturbing. <laughs> right. Yeah, Cassie had a visual and verbal reaction to the money being burned, but... And not out of greed. Just literally out of how much work that had to be for somebody. And it's just like, it's disturbing to see him burn that money. Because, like, if I were doing that and I saw that pile of money, but hell yeah, give me it. Yeah. But he's just like, nah, I'm good. And I think that makes and him... It's a... not about the money, it's about sending a message. Everything yeah. burns and like, oh man... That makes him a scarier villain, kind of like Alfred was talking about. He's like, some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah. That's literally him. He just literally doesn't care about anything except for inciting chaos. Yeah, when when Alfred's about when when Alfred's talking about the Joker, like the, he's like, I've seen a person like this before. Mm-hmm. And he talks about when he was a soldier in the Burmese army, and he or the forest in Burma for the for the British army. And they were trying to find this thief who'd been stealing um, rubies. Mm-hmm. Jewels. And all of a sudden, one day, they found this kid who had was playing with a ruby. He quoted the size of a tangerine. Yeah. The bandit had just been robbing them for sport. Yeah. And Bruce is like, "What? What do you mean?" He goes, "Some men just want to watch the world burn." Yep. You know, some men aren't looking for anything logical or reasonable. They just want to watch. Some men just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, it's not it's not about attaining a goal, it's not about attaining power, it's just about for sport. For sport. And that honestly probably means that something terrible happened to them because yeah. if you're not trying to further yourself in this world some way, then some what trauma has happened to you and you're clearly just trying to send a message well, somehow, I guess. Well and like later in the movie, like when I alluded to that speech that um when when Bruce is like broken after Rachel dies you know, he's just trying to find some... Because the Joker's won yeah. at that point. The Joker is up three games to none in a seven-game series. He's about to sweep. He's about to clinch it. And, you know, Bruce says, did you ever find that bandit? Ugh. Bruce says, did you ever find that bandit? And Alfred says, yeah, we burned down the forest. It's like all that effort to get one man, that was just amazing because... Now Bruce has to go through even more effort to get the Joker because Harvey Dent's missing. Or Harvey Dent's, you know, gone, essentially. And Commissioner Gordon is so tied up with trying to find Dent that Batman has to just use his resources even more to find this man who will will not give up at all. Yeah. And, you know, touching on Heath Ledger's Joker, it's an incredible character. And I remember when the when he was cast, people were like, outraged so pissed off like furious that he got cast and i I never understood the hatred like i thought right away you know i i first heard about it i'm like "Mm, okay you know all right i can see it but you know i'm like who am i to really you know to really judge and i always liked heath ledger and the stuff i saw so why not give him a shot and it ended up working out amazing it's 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 died way too young. He should still be here with us. You know, it's uh, funny because I've watched uh, 10 Things I Hate About You since I've seen Dark Knight. And you can see his little Joker smile. Hmm, really? Yeah. I've never seen that movie. It's it's a good movie. I mean, it's a rom-com. Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it too, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, a little Batman connection. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And what's interesting is that I remember people really wanted... Paul Bettany to play the Joker and I was like no I don't I could see it from his face but I just was like no thank you the other people were some actor named Lackey Holm um, 
Australian actor. Ugh, I don't see it. Just out of He looks more like him. he'd be two-faced. <laughs> and uh, Steve Carell? No, no way. Oh my gosh. Can Eight? you imagine Michael Scott being the Joker? Honestly. Oh, this is Joker Mike. Um, <laughs> I mean, that would have turned it, honestly, from a serious it would have been bad to a comedy so fast. And then Adrian Brody, I could have seen that. He has the face for the Joker. Um, but Adrian Brody's so soft-spoken. I don't think that it would have worked. And Robin Williams wanted to play the Joker. No way. I love Robin Williams. I miss him. I don't see it. I do not see it. See, I think it. here's what they were trying to do with Steve Carell and Robin Williams as those ideas. M- make more money. more maniacal. Yeah. Make the Joker less... Crazy. Less... Well, I don't know. Almost make, more crazy. Make him less absurd and dark and more mischievous and goofy. Because there's yes. definitely different levels of the Joker like throughout the cartoons... And the movies and, like, the TV shows. But so I guess that's more, like, how, like he thinks it's so funny what he is doing mm-hmm. instead of, like, honestly trying to incite the chaos because he hates the world. And that's the vibe we get from Heath Ledger is that, like, he does find it amusing but not, like, laugh out loud amusing just to himself because he hates the world. Nolan wanted to work with Heath Ledger and Heath Ledger even auditioned to play, or he wanted Bat- Heath Ledger to play Batman in Batman I Begins. I could have really seen that. Like a 24-year-old Heath Ledger. And Ledger saw Batman Begins and was like, I can do the Joker like this. And like they both agreed on like a tone. Mm-hmm. And so I think to get that before you can even do a script or before you really start finishing a script, I think that made it, you could see that. Like the movie's built around the Joker. It's a Batman movie, but the Joker is like the main part of it. Oh, absolutely. That's the, the whole draw to this movie is the Joker. Um, Would you, well, should we talk about um, Bale's choice for that weird voice that Batman has? I have no explanation for <laughs> Batman's growl. Um, the, where is he? I guess it's pretty impressive that the movie is as good as it is with that horrible right. thing the whole way through. And I get it because, like, I mean, Michael Keaton just used his voice as like, I'm Batman. Like, he talked a little quieter and... Clooney and Kilmer didn't hide their voices, so you could easily tell if you were around both. You'd be like, wait, that's Bruce Wayne. Wayne." But, like, I get why he's doing it. I think it was added in uh, post-production. I think they said Nolan and him agreed to do, like, something different for the voice. But it was just so over-the-top, in my opinion. I mean, I get he was supposed to be menacing and scary to the villains, but I think it was just quite a lot. An interesting summary of Bruce in this movie, Bale described... Batman's of dilemma, Batman's dilemma as whether he, his mission is something that has an end. Can he quit and have an ordinary life? The kind of manic intensity someone has to have to maintain the passion, the anger that they felt as a child, takes an effort after a while to keep doing that. At some point, you have to exercise your demons, which we did see in Dark Knight Rises. Now that you have not just a young man in pain attempting to find some kind of answer. You have somebody who actually has power, who is burdened by that power, and is having to recognize the difference between attaining the power and holding on to it. That pretty much sums up his struggle in this movie really well. Because the Joker takes that power away from him, uh, and uh, not directly, but indirectly takes it away from him. Because the Joker's captured and he thinks he's got it, but at the end Harvey Dent kidnaps Gordon's family, he's about to shoot his son's head off, and Batman saves saves everybody, kills 
Two-Face inadvertently by throwing him off the, throwing him away from his son, throws him off the ledge. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that build-up to that moment, because, you know, Gordon's about to call it in, but then, you know, Batman says, you, you know, if you do this, everything we've done will have been lost. Like, the Joker will have won, and he's obviously alive in this universe, and he would see it and probably laugh his brains out. He'd probably just laugh all day. Yeah. And he would be freed. That was the, the Joker would be freed. And, like, when he says, I can do the things, I can do those things. I can make those sacrifices. He goes, I kill those people. Like, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, my God. Like, he's just basically saying, make me the bad guy. And you would never see that in, like, the Burton ones or the Kloomer, Kloomer, the uh, Clooney and Kilmer ones. Mm -hmm. You'd never see that. And I just thought it took another level to end the movie like that. And to set up Dark Knight Rises, which some people would say it was set up for failure, but I disagree. I think that movie is a good movie. People have their opinions on it. But objectively, it is a fine movie. Yeah. Um, and I could talk about this for another hour, but I'm, I'm going to cut myself off. We're, we're pretty long, but hey, I guess you could say we're making up for last week. Yeah, um, I mean, should we talk about Christopher Nolan as a filmmaker a little bit more instead of just sure. Dark Knight? Yeah, I mean, we talked about Interstellar, but like, uh, I'll let you go ahead. i got to kind of gather my thoughts. <clears throat> I guess, I, I mean, I, it is pretty impressive that somebody who has only made ten movies, I mean, honestly, only ten, and that's including his first short that nobody has seen, um, it's pretty impressive. Yeah. Tenet's his eleventh movie. Yeah. That hopefully we see this year. But, um... I mean, obviously he loves playing with special effects, he likes playing with time, memory, space... Um, science fiction is a big player in it, but not as much as like a whole other world. More like are we our world reimagined? I would say. Because mm-hmm. I know if you consider sci-fi, a lot of the time it's like, you know, Star Wars or Star Trek or something that's very uh, different from our everyday, and he doesn't really do that. Right, like he he tries to keep his movies grounded in realism. Like it's obviously harder for Dark Knight. For Batman, like a, a fictional superhero, mm-hmm. but it worked pretty well in Batman Begins because I mean, yeah, Ra's al Ghul isn't really a person who could exist, but like you could see someone like the Scarecrow existing, like basically a messed up drug dealer that is addicted to getting his victims like insane. Yeah, a, and, a drug dealer who used to be a psychiatrist. I mean, and the Joker is someone who's dealing with obviously heavy trauma. Who I'm not going to go into it, but there's a really interesting theory online that the Joker was an Iraq war veteran because he kind of alludes to it and he knows all the weapons like he knows how to load and handle them like the scene where That's they're true. they're driving in the um the tunnel when they're trying to kill Harvey Dent in that in that armored car he knows exactly how to load the RPG grenade la- or the the rocket launcher yeah he knows exactly how to handle those firearms and, and not many civilians like would know how to do that no and like the scene where he says how about a magic trick he takes that guy's arm before he even starts shoving him to the table. He doesn't do it like a rookie. He grabs his arm and holds his hand, like takes yeah, so that's his hand. Some combat training. That is combat training. Like I don't know if it's Navy SEALs or just basic army training, but and then he talks about you know I could say to the press that a truckload of soldiers will blow up and nobody panics. 
because it's all part of the plan. Yeah, so that is alluding to he's obviously experienced that yeah. before. I, I really believe he was an Iraq War veteran. Like, Nolan will never say it. That'd be really cool if he did, though, because that would that would say a lot. Like, that'd be almost a political statement about how this country treats their uh, war veterans. Right. And, and usually it's poorly. I mean, but I guess, I don't know if that's a correct statement or if it's just, like, the effects of war. And the Dark Knight did have a political statement when uh, Bruce builds that sonar technology to find the Joker. Spying on every person's phone yeah. in the city. Because Lucius is like, this is wrong. Like, I'm quitting. That was definitely an allusion to what Bush did after 9-11 with the Patriot Act and everything. Yeah. And I'm not trying to make it political, but that's literally what it was. Because that's what I think Jonah Nolan said. is like We kind of touched on that a little bit, but didn't make it political. But yeah, you know, we kind of brought up the Patriot Act a little bit in, like, a, a Batman version. Well, fantasy has to come from reality in some right. form, so... It was a cool idea, yeah. and I'm sure the government saw it and was and like, oh, the shit. And it was very prevalent, yeah. so... Um, but, like, Nolan... He makes just really entertaining movies. Like, every movie makes you think a little bit, and, you know, every movie's a little bit of different. You know, I saw this, and I'm like, oh, my God, this guy's amazing. And then I saw Inception, and I'm like okay, I'm not worried about the third Batman movie because that's what everyone was thinking. Like, what's he going to follow up The Dark Knight with? Right. A really good movie that was nominated for a bunch of Academy Awards. So, you know, we were all like, okay, this guy's good. And, you know, Dark Knight Rises has... unfortunately, the Colorado shooting happened. Yeah, the Dark Knight Rises happened, and it had that Colorado shooting in Aurora, Colorado. And, you know, it it was a tough thing. You know, you can't really, you can't control that. And um, it's it's it was marred in that and a couple other things, but you know I think the movie's fine. I don't have issues with it. I like Tom Hardy as Bane, and the voice is a little goofy at first, but you get used to it, and it ties the whole trilogy together. And there's some trilogies who don't get tied together, and yeah. I I like that about it, is that it's a finite conclusion, and Bruce is able to have a life and be happy at the end, and that he got his mission accomplished. Batman is a symbol of hope. Like, it, he is truly a, a hero, and that's what Bruce wanted in the end. I don't think he could ever have a life and be happy, but some I mean, he, form of it, maybe. He did. I'm sure someday he'd probably want to come back to being Batman. But well, I guess just, that was the cool part about him ending up with Catwoman, was that they had that life together. I mean, right. it's probably not like they're going to have kids or anything, you know? You never know. But, but you know what I mean? Like, their lifestyle would be that. Right. But I just think this is a guy who makes the movies that he wants, but, like, knows that he's got to make quality. Like, Michael Bay makes the movies that he wants, but they're not necessarily amazing so writing. pumps them out. Or, you know, he Nolan likes to use practical effects. He doesn't like to use special effects unless he has to. Obviously, for Interstellar, he had to. In Inception. Yeah, in Inception. But, like, in Dunkirk, he strapped cameras to real World War II planes. Like, that shit's cool. And Tenet, he's used a lot of practical effects from what I've seen in trailers and from, like, filming and stuff. I think that's what always makes the best mm-hmm. um, outcome is when you mix the two, practical and special. But yeah, like Jurassic Park, there's a mix of practical and special uh, special effects. And you can tell, but, like, it's still pretty seamless. Yeah. Like, with the T-Rex, you can definitely tell when it's up close and then when it's far away. Right. But it's still pretty incredible. And This I, many years later, it still holds up. It's right. good. And I just, I, I think Nolan's an incredible filmmaker, and I, I, you know, we're just, 
you know, this is his 10th movie. He's got a long career ahead of him still. Mm-hmm. And I just want to say my last piece on The Dark Knight. This is a movie that really should have won Best Picture at the 2009 Oscars. It was left off the list and replaced by The Reader, which was not a good movie. Um, the finalists were Slumdog Millionaire, um, The Reader, and a couple other ones. I don't know off the top of my head, but, um... It's because the Oscars is a very elite society of awards. Right. There's a certain... That's why you always hear about this is, you know, Oscar-nominated, Oscar-winning. They're always the same kind of movies. It's because they are not... They're never going to award a action movie, especially a superhero action movie, and they're probably never going to award a straight-up comedy either. Right. I'd be floored if they did that one day. That'd be a game changer. Well, what's interesting about that whole Oscar fiasco was, although it didn't receive a Best Picture nomination, the show's opening song paid homage to The Dark Knight, along with the other five Best Picture nominees. So it was pretty much an open secret that, yeah, this movie probably should have been in the running. And, um, like, the, the then-president of the Academy talked about the snubbing of the film, and people were so pissed that it got left off the list and everything that, you know, the next year it was changed to ten nominees instead of five. And I like how they thought that the number was the issue. Right. The issue definitely was the genre and kind of movie it was. Well, and, and Ten nominees, way too much to keep track of. Right. But then the then-president said, after extending the field, I would not be telling you the truth if I said the words Dark Knight did not come up. So that definitely was the catalyst. So you could say it did change the Oscars forever because they didn't keep it 10 forever. Now it's basically kind of like whatever ones they really feel worthy. Yeah. No matter what number. And that's how it should have always been. That is how it should have always been because there should Because this would have won. There shouldn't be... It sh- they should make it at least like under 10. It shouldn't be over 10. Right. But like if they feel that... This year, only five movies were deserving of this nominee. If they feel only three, if they feel seven, you know, they should have a little bit more leeway with it because that makes it more about the art and less about the have to. Right. And, I I mean, I'm trying to think of, like, adapted screenplay, like it didn't get nominated, and I think it should have been on the list. Yeah, I mean, if it wasn't um, Best Picture nominated, it should have at least been some other category. Like, because... Like you said, like script or, I mean, screenplay or effects or something. This is ridiculous because, like, best director, I think Nolan was one of the top five of that year. It should have been him, Danny Boyle, David Fincher, Russ Howard, and Gus Van Sant. It should not have been the Stephen Daldry guy from The Reader. That movie just got plopped in there, I think, because they were like, oh, man. That movie's Oscar bait if I ever seen Oscar bait before. But it wasn't the best, honestly. No, and it's... It's sad that it got that far. Like, it didn't get it adapted. It got nominated for a couple other things. I think it got nominated for eight awards. I mean, honestly, I'm personally not a fan of uh, of a lot of those movies on that list. I'm not a fan of um, The Reader. I'm not a fan of Revolutionary Road. I'm not a fan of Slumdog Millionaire. I mean, a lot of those movies are not my favorite, personally. Yeah, I mean, it won two Oscars for sound editing and, obviously, Heath Ledger. Should have won Best Makeup, too. Although Benjamin Button did have pretty good makeup. Yeah, that would have had to go to Benjamin Button. Because age makeup is so much harder. 
But, you know, this movie has a lasting effect on pop culture. You know, you got Heath Ledger. People still consider him the standard, even though Joaquin Phoenix had a pretty good Joker. It wasn't like the Joker, the purebred Joker. It was like kind of a, it was like a, a more born, a more born from, born from Heath mental Ledger's. illness Joker. Yeah. This Joker would not have existed. No, absolutely. It was a, it was an interesting take on the Joker. Yeah. Like, um. And, you know, and it obviously had an effect on the Oscars because now they just say, okay, these are the movies that are truly worthy instead of, sorry, five of them, you're gone. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean. And, yeah, that, that would have opened that window, and I guess that would have been something they would have had to think about. But, really, it shouldn't be that way, in our opinion. It should be, it should be the movie was good or was not good. It shouldn't right. be anything else. And... I, I will say that forever. The Dark Knight should have won the Best Picture Award at the 81st Academy Awards. It really should have. And I think people in Hollywood know that if it got in the field, mm-hmm. it probably wins. And the olds at the Academy probably collectively shit their pants when they see Chris Nolan and his brother up there accepting the Oscar. I mean, I think the thing is is that it doesn't always have to be a downer drama in order for it to be a good movie. Right. It can be a lighthearted movie that's done very well. I mean, I don't know, look at Jojo Rabbit. That movie is... Phenomenal movie. That's a phenomenal movie that's lighthearted, but it also deals with very serious issues. Right. I think that there can be somewhere in between. It doesn't have to be one or the other. But hey, you know, Nolan might get his Oscars next year because Tenet's trying to come out and everything else is getting pushed back. Even though people would put an asterisk next to him winning Best Director or Best Picture, I really don't give a shit because then it means he has his Oscar and he deserves one. He does deserve an Oscar. I can't believe Interstellar didn't win any. I thought it was going to be a Best Picture nominee, but then I'm like, ah, it's pretty long and I don't know if people are going to want to go for it. That's too bad. It's very, very good. But um, that was our look back at Christopher Nolan, an amazing director. I'm sure an amazing person. I'm just going to say it. Amazing guy. I mean, um, if we're really talking about us personally, uh, <laughs> we started, we we met each other online, and that was one of our first conversations was about Christopher Nolan. So. Yeah, man, I still went out with her. Um, <laughs> we're going to do Clint Eastwood for our next director's look back. We're going to watch Million Dollar Baby, which I have never seen, and Gran Torino, which a lot of people have seen. And, and we've both seen Gran Torino, but it has yeah. been a while. So. Yeah, it's, I haven't seen it since it came out. Yeah. Um, so that is our plan for next week, and um, hopefully some movie news comes out. You know, maybe we get some updates on things reopening. But uh, thanks for dealing with this long podcast. We're back. We're back on schedule, and um, I hope everyone's staying safe and being responsible and being a good citizen. Yes, please be nice to each other. Be kind and be nice. Um, I think that's the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. Be kind, nice, and respectful. Yep. Um, So for us at the Weekly Whitney, uh, we will talk to you next week and have a great week. Bye.